Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast about Jewish food. I'm Beth Schenker, your host, and today I'm talking with Stacy Bayless, author and writer of culinary fiction, blogger, home improvement specialist, and many other things in between. Welcome to The Big Schmear, Stacy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me into your really lovely home. And because this isn't a video podcast, I want everybody to know that not only is this a gorgeous home, but the kitchen is amazing. I glanced at it for a moment, and we might maybe we'll talk about it a little more later, but you should be very envious of me. I'm having a great time here. So before we talk about your novels, I wonder if you can tell me how you got into serious cooking. What were your like what were some of your early influences and yeah, let's let's start there. Well, so my my cooking traces directly back to my grandmother, Johnny, of blessed memory. And Johnny was a cook, a passionate home cook. She was an editor and recipe tester for cookbooks. And she also, in the 80s, launched a small catering business out of her kitchen, which started as helping out my mother. My mother was, my mother's a realtor here in Chicago and uh, was doing open houses. And my grandmother started making treats for my mother to serve at these open houses. And that must have been a hit. Oh, it was a huge <laughs> hit. It was, no one loves free food like, like the real estate brokers. So they, she started making these treats. And as that got popular, she started doing full luncheons. And other realtors would come up to her and say, would you do this for my open houses? And so she launched a small catering business called The Lunchbox, that specialized in real estate open houses and doing luncheons for that. She also catered luncheon at, at my mom's uh, reality office periodically. So she had that catering company. And I get all of my cooking, my direct cooking from her. She also introduced me to Julia Child when I was, I think, four. Oh, my God. Um, not in person, but right, right. the television shows. And so I always joke that I am the, I'm the love child of my grandmother and Julia Child. I'm like a creme brulee kugel. I'm a total <laughs> Francophile. I'm passionate about visiting France and French food and French culture and the life that French people tend to lead, their lifestyle. But I'm also really grounded in solid shtetl cooking. And I get all of that from, from Johnny. And she was, she was always great about letting you get your hands dirty and jump in. She was never particularly worried about handing you something to mix or a small knife to work with, even when we were young. And for a long time, we lived in a building where she lived in the uh, condo right below us. So frequently, I would come home from school and not go to my house at all. I'd just go directly to Johnny's house and see what she was cooking and playing with. And I, I got all of that from her. What a great way to grow up. It was really special. And what a generous grandmother, too. That's, that's really lovely. Yeah. When did you, when did you figure that there was going to be some connection between food and your professional career. Because if I'm remembering correctly, when I was doing my homework, you didn't start out to be a professional cook. You were an educator. Correct. And I'm not a professional cook. I'm a, I'm a passionate, self-trained, grandmother-trained home cook. And never, ever thought about cooking as a career. I started my life as an educator. I was a, an English teacher in the Chicago Public High Schools. 
And then after a few years doing that, I transferred into theater education. I was the director of education and community programs at the Goodman Theater here in Chicago. And that was wonderful and fabulous, and I wouldn't have changed a thing about that. When I started writing the novels, it was important to me to include food because we eat all day, every day, all of us, and I don't trust books that don't have food in them. And so I found, I, like <laughs> I, I, I just don't. If you go through a book and you read chapter after chapter and no one sits down for a meal or wonders what's for dinner or has a little snack over the sink, there's something wrong. So I really started writing the food into my books very naturally. And what I discovered in the course of, I guess, the first four books was that food started to become another character and a driving force in the narrative arc. I genuinely believe that the way people cook and eat, the way they feed themselves, the way they feed other people, tells you who they are. And I was putting that instinctively into the novels. It wasn't until my fifth book, Good Enough to Eat, that I started putting the recipes in the books. Which I loved. Which is great and has to do entirely with my own problem of if I read something and something sounds delicious, I want to cook that. And I felt I could take that on in my own work. I could say, if I'm making, if, if my character's making this recipe and it's going to make you hungry, you should be able to flip to the back and go cook that yourself. So that's when they started calling me foodie fiction or culinary fiction because the recipes started making an appearance. But since the very first book, food tells you a lot about the main character and who they are. You know, the, the, the line is always, you are what you eat. I always say you are what and how you eat and how you cook and how you interact with food, both with yourself and with others. So can you give me an example of that? Sure. I can give you a couple that I, okay. that I tend to use. The first one is if you think about your personal circle of friends, and somebody in that circle is having a crisis, uh, a breakup, a difficult time at work, the loss of a job, the loss of a, of a partner or a spouse, uh, uh, the loss of a parent, something intense. You have the friend that will come grab you and take you to the spa. You have the friend that will come over with a bottle of tequila and get you drunk. But you also have that friend that's going to show up with baked goods or a casserole yep. who's going to feed you. And that t- you, there's no wrong answer there. All of those are really good things, and you should have all of those people in your life. But the person that brings you the casserole, there's something you know about them as a person. If I say to you, I'm going to fix you up with my friend, and he's a great guy, he's smart, he's funny, he's tall, he's lovely, he only eats 11 things. Okay, then. You start to get an impression of who that person is. And I do have a character in one of my books who only eats 11 things. And during the course of the book, you start to find out, as the main character gets to know him better, why he only eats 11 things. And so I just think that people's relationship with food, in the same way that you have people in your life who, for whom food is the devil, is a fear, they, they watch every mouthful, it's never a pleasure. If they eat something that is delicious, they're immediately guilt-ridden that that's bad for them. All of those interactions around food are part and parcel of who we are. And as people, we make 200 independent decisions about food every single day. That's a lot of work. It is. (laughs) And a lot of it is you don't pay attention. 
But every time, if you work in an office, every time you walk by the lounge, is there a bowl of M&Ms out? Is there a thing of donuts out? And your brain is making instantaneous decisions. I'm going to eat this. I'm not going to eat this. I'm going to have a handful. I'm going to fill my pockets. I'm going to have a half a donut. I'm going to take three donuts and hide them in my desk. Those decisions (laughs) happen instantaneously. If you go to a restaurant and there's 30 things on the menu and you read all of them, each time you read a menu item, you're making a decision. Do I like this? Do I not like this? Do I like this one, but I like the sides better over here. This sounds interesting, but the sauce on the other one sounds more delicious. You're making all of these decisions every day. So for me, that had to go into the books. I'm just laughing because today in our office lounge, there was a ton of food. I must have been in there for th- other things. There, our mailroom is there as well. Eight times, ten times. Right. So I did. My mind went through all that. Oh, look what's here this time. Should I take this? Shouldn't I take this? Oh my God. It's yeah. Did somebody bring it in? They're going to be offended if I don't taste it. Did somebody (laughs) bring it in? And I know they're not a good cook, but if I taste it, it's not going to be worth the calories. Like you make all of those decisions all the time. It's uh, it's a little crazy. So you pretty much said that your novels um, center on food. And I did want to, so I want to name some of those books. Um, just so people have a sense of what we're talking about when we talk about your novels. One is Off the Menu, and another is Out to Lunch, Recipe for Disaster, Wedding Girl, and How to Change a Life. And I will tell people that as I was, I knew I was going to be interviewing you soon, mm-hmm. so I did a little homework, and I thought, what better way to know a little bit more about Stacy than to read one of the books? And so I did, and then I couldn't stop. So I've read five or six of them, and I love them all, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't have kept reading. And then I didn't even realize that the recipes were in the back until I got to the back, and I just thought, oh my God, this is so great. I just love this. Yes, that's exactly what it felt like. It was so fun. So, And I will say more about where people can find your books and all of that, but really, they're they're just great, fun to read, and and have great recipes. Thank you. um, I hope people follow through on this. Tell me a little bit about how you went from being an educator in the school system and theater to writing novels. That seems like it's a huge step. And I mean, lots of people have the dream of writing their first novel. You did more than the first novel. (laughs) So, so tell me how that happened. It was an accident, which is not (laughs) something anybody wants to hear because everybody loves the story of I toiled and I toiled. Uh, I was always a writer. I've been a writer since I was very young. And I was always predominantly a poet and some short fiction. And that was always for me the way that I journaled. I never wrote for publication. I never wrote thinking about a broad readership. I didn't assemble things into books or collections. I just, that's how I sort of handle, I've never been good at keeping a diary sort of journal. This is what happened to me today. But when my life would require that I put pen to paper about something, it would come out usually in poetry, occasionally in short fiction. I was working at the Goodman Theater in 2011 And two very important things happened within a week of each other, actually within five days of each other. I got divorced and 9-11 happened. Whoa. Um, There is nothing like the world blowing up to put your little failed marriage into proper perspective. But it also put me into a very weird place with both my reading and my writing. I wasn't writing at all. 
uh, at a time when I needed the writing the most, the words would not come to the page. And as someone who historically read a tremendous amount of literary fiction, classic fiction, nonfiction, I couldn't focus on those books. And I took a lunch break one day and walked over to, there, there used to be a Borders uh, on the corner of Randolph and State, I think, that was, you know, two blocks from my office. And I took a lunch break and I walked over and it was the height of the chick lit boom. And I bought every book with a pink cover on the front table. If it had a martini glass or a shoe or a shopping bag, I grabbed it because I felt like I needed to be reading and I couldn't focus on anything serious. I wanted light mm -hmm. and fun and fluffy. And for all of the really great chiclet books that are out there, and there are a lot of them, I got a bad batch. Whatever it was, I got a batch of things that were not relevant to who I am as a person. They were all about 20-somethings. They were all about I'm a size 10 or 12, and I think that I'm fat, and if I'm fat, I can't get the guy, and I can't get the job. They were all set in New York. A lot of them were set in the publishing world. And you knew exactly what was going to happen and what the outcome was going to be on about page 10. And you didn't care enough about the characters to even deliciously say, I know what's going to happen, but I want to follow along anyway. And it made me angry. And so as someone who has always tried not to be too on their high horse, it's very easy to go to the museum and look at the big white painting and say, well, it's a big white painting. I could do that. I've never tried to make a big white painting. Maybe that's harder than it looks. I thought maybe that's the thing to get me back into writing. I'm going to try to write something in this chiclet style, but I'm going to make it smart. I'm going to make it about a woman of physical and intellectual substance. I'm going to make it sexy in a real way and not in a strange sort of, you know, hearts and arrows way. I'm just going to see if I can do it. I'm going to write a short story. And so I sat down to write a short story about a woman who is a size 24, who is in her 30s, who is having a mad, passionate affair with a man 20 years her senior, who is also married. And never once was she going to bemoan the size of her pants. And she was going to revel in who she is as a person and in this new awakening she's having. And it was going to be smart and it was going to be funny and it was going to be not expected. And that short story, 400 pages later, I said, oops, <laughs> apparently I had something to say, and here is a book. At the time, because Chiclet was so popular, there was a new imprint that was launched called Red Dress Inc., and they were pumping out between two and four Chiclet titles a month. Wow. And because they needed so much content, they were taking unsolicited, unagented manuscripts at the publishing house. And a friend told me about them. And on a total whim, I sent off three chapters and a synopsis. And I got a phone call six days later, send us the whole manuscript, <laughs> which I did. And three weeks later, they called and said, we're going to offer you a two book deal. And I called a cousin of mine, Sue Sussman, who's a New York Times bestselling author. And I said, Sue, I need a lawyer. And she said, you don't need a lawyer. You need an agent. And you're going to call Scott in New York. I'm going to tell him that you're going to call. And he will negotiate this deal for you. And I called Scott in New York. And Sue had prepped him. And I said, I have a deal memo coming Monday. 
This was a Friday. He said, send me the manuscript electronically. I will read it this weekend. I will negotiate your deal on Monday. And so that was in uh, 2012. That was my first book, Inappropriate Men. I've been with Scott ever since. Um, I have changed publishers since then. I did my first two books with uh, Red Dress Inc. And then I shifted to Penguin Random House. But writers hate when I say I spent $4 on postage. I sent out one unsolicited, unagented query. And in 31 days, I had a book deal and an agent, which doesn't happen to anybody. I think it's a really hopeful story because in a day and age where you need to be a celebrity or you need to have something particularly unusual about your life story or you need to know somebody in publishing, I managed to launch a career in, in publishing without any of those things just based on the quality of the work. That's incredible. It was a, it was a very <laughs> strange time. And I did both for four books. So I published my first four books while I was still working full-time at The Goodman. Whew. Yeah. And folks, she's still sane and, <laughs> and she's cooking. It says someone that doesn't know me very well. I am still cooking. I, okay. My okay. sanity is always in question. <laughs> so what I want to ask you next is you kind of talked about how you, food was important, an important component to your books and how you kind of think of that as an, an additional character. I'm wondering for the books that I've, I've read and it's the reason that I'm talking to you even today, is that you managed to have a Jewish food connection and a Jewish food person in all the books that I read. And so, knowing you as little as I do, I'm <laughs> guessing that was not an accident. And um, tell me how that piece happened. Was that like part of the plan from the beginning? Or did it just kind of happen and you thought, oh, I like this or... Well, you know, the, you talk about, you write what you know. Um, all my books are set in Chicago because I'm a fifth generation Chicago girl. And that make, is what makes sense to me. All of my characters have some connection to some sort of Jewish heritage, whether they are practicing or not. I grew up a very, uh, you know, what we refer to lovingly as a food Jew. We celebrate the holidays. Our Judaism is important to us as a cultural touchstone as a, as a historic issue, we were not a traditionally religious family. My, you know, I like to think of myself as somewhat spiritual, but that doesn't connect to going to temple or having a religious practice. But we have always been very connected to the Jewish community, to Jewish causes, to, and to Jewish food. And the holidays for me, I think in part because we never went to temple, we would, they were all about being together with family and celebrating with traditional food. And that became something to look forward to and to celebrate. We, my family shares a weekend place out in the country. And so my memories of growing up and, you know, we're coming up on the high holidays. Rosh Hashanah, for example, was never about sitting in an uncomfortable, itchy outfit in temple where they're saying things I don't understand. And my mother shushing me and making me behave myself. Our Rosh Hashanah was with our family and some very close family friends who essentially are family to us in a beautiful setting outside, eating apples and honey and reading from books about what the holiday means and why it means that and talking to each other and being together with the TV off and, and you know, celebrating autumn in a beautiful place where the leaves were actually falling. So my memories of all these holidays are 
completely entwined in the food, but also in family and enjoy of just being together. And so I wanted to be able to highlight and celebrate that experience. I think there are so few novels percentage wise where the main character is Jewish and often those stories are their Holocaust stories or their historical stories or their stories that are about Judaism. It's not that common that you find someone who's just sort of your very typical super reformed secular Jew living their life where there is a Jewish through line but no one's going to bat an eye at you if you date someone who's not Jewish. No one's going to bat an eye when you, you know, make a really good ham, which I do. It's that kind of experience that is part and parcel of who I am. And so I just wanted to, to see myself in a book. I, I love that about the book. And you're absolutely right that there's this whole other genre of Jewish context in books. And so to be able to read a novel about a Jewish family or a family that just happens to be Jewish, but you get the sense of what's important about being Jewish in that, in that story. And some of, in your case, it's, it's through the food experience. Did you feel any sense of responsibility, extra responsibility as you portrayed these Jewish characters and talked about the Jewish food or was it to you just kind of a natural thing and it's who you are. So that wasn't really a question. I'm, I'm just kind of curious. Well, I, I, I never felt a particular responsibility because I wasn't, I wasn't putting myself in somebody else's culture or experience. I think where you get into issues of needing to take on responsibility around whether it's a religion or, uh, or any, any, a race, anything like that, is when it isn't your own and it isn't your own experience. And then you really have to do your homework and you really have to be sensitive to the otherness of experience. If I'm writing about my own experience or an experience very similar to mine, I don't have to worry so much about that overarching responsibility. And in fact, you know, I, th- I think there's such an opportunity there to make something that is very other to a large, you know, still very other to a large percentage of the population, much more normalized in the same way that I try very hard in my novels to write, uh, women of physical substance and women that are, are plus size where that is not the defining characteristic of who they are. It's just one element. It's often the least interesting thing about them because so much of literature that focuses on weight and body image and, and that sort of thing, that is the central focus of the book. Whereas for me, my heroines range, you know, all the way up, you know, I think the, the few smallest ones are sort of a size 14, 16, and, and which is the national average at the moment. And they range up to a size 24. And the books are not, with the one exception, are not about their weight and they're not about their size. And there will be little throwaway comments like, you know, oh, I, you know, I'm slipping into my size 18 jeans and that is what it is. And then we move on. There are things about people that are often the least interesting thing about them that other people tend to focus on because it's other and different. And for me, this is a way of normalizing a couple of those things. Yeah. I I love that about the book, about your books. Thank you. I think you talked a little bit about how you thought about food as character in your novels but did you 
how did you decide what specific foods? Was there a plan about that? And and once you decided on a dish that's talked about, did you actually have to do serious recipe testing for those? And maybe talk a little bit about, it's not just simply, I'm going to mention this food, because especially because you do the recipes. It's it's more complicated. It is more complicated. So the the dishes come usually pretty organically in the writing. Someone's going to sit down to a meal. You know, most of my characters are somehow involved in the food industry. They are chefs and caterers and personal chefs and bakers. And, you know, so it's part of what they do as a, for their job. And so if you're going to have a scene where they're working, they're interacting with food. Most of those recipes come fairly organically in the moment, whether that's a heroine that's had a very long day and is coming home and what is she going to eat? You know, what is she going to find in the fridge? I might actually get up and go to my fridge and look and see, well, what do I have lying about? If I was in this situation right now that I had to throw a dinner together, what would that look like? So the dishes come organically in the writing. But I do, even though we only put maybe five or six recipes in the back of the books, Unless it's a dish that I mentioned that I have already made before and I'm aware of, I will recipe test every recipe that's in the book because I have to know that a dish that's come wholesale out of my head as an idea and a grouping of ingredients, they sound like they will work, but unless you cook it at least once. Right. So I don't do rigorous recipe testing the way that I do for a cookbook, for example, because I'm not necessarily sharing it for somebody else. But every dish that has been mentioned in any of my books has been cooked by me at least once, unless it is a dish that's specifically mentioned in a restaurant, which often then is a dish I've had in a restaurant. I'm about out of time, but please join me for part two with Stacy Bayless in the next episode of The Big Schmear. I want to wish you all Shana Tova, a very happy new year filled with lots of great eating. Our engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Be sure to check out thebigschmear.com to find recipes shared by my guests. If you like The Big Schmear, don't forget to subscribe to my podcast and like us on Facebook. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening.